And welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast which looks at the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma. And in this episode, we're exploring the hit BBC show, Killing Eve. And for the first time, Karen, we are not alone. No, we're actually live and really live. And I just had to run downstairs and pick up some batteries because my Tascam decided it wasn't going to record. We're that live. <laughs> so live. We're having technical issues. What a treat. But we are, I mean, we're <laughs> delighted to be live. Um, thank you so much, Cardiff Science Festival, for, for having us in your, in your lineup. Um, and thank you to all 25,000 of you that are currently on Zoom <laughs> right now joining us live. Yeah, we, we definitely mustn't mess this up. I'm assuming... I've messed this up at the beginning and that's going to be it now. So that'll be fine. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, normally we can edit out um, all of the little mistakes and things that go wrong, but not on video. No. So, okay. Before you, before you jinx it and we end up having to do some more editing later, um, Karen, tell, tell our lovely listeners and viewers um, what it is that we're going to be talking about today. So today we're going to be asking about the science behind Killing Eve and we're going to be looking at whether science can explain why she's such a good assassin, Villanelle. We're going to be looking at the science behind some of her kills and of course we're going to be investigating the science behind Spycraft. We are indeed. But before we get started, our live non-studio audience, don't forget to complete the polls in the event chat. Um, all will become clear later in the episode. Yes. And in, in all our podcasts, what we do is we try and include kind of things from the show so quotes from the show um so look out for those uh, during the episode and what we'd love you to do is to is to get along in a tweet along now uh, the two of us won't be checking twitter because we're going to have our hands full for the next hour or so um but what you can do is drop us a little note in the chat so if you spot any of those show quotes um we'll give a good nice thumbs up to whoever spots them first i, I want to see how many of them you can get but um one last item of housekeeping karen yeah. Our listeners are viewers this time. So do you want to um, give us a spin? Explain your outfit? Well, you might have got a bit of a flash of the outfit when I went running off the batteries. But I am dressed in my Villanelle skirt. So I'm just going to show you here. Um, I've got some netting on it here. Look, see? See, I've got my netting skirt. It's not as pink as Villanelle's, but I thought I'd, I'd dress up. And that's thanks very much to Sarah, uh, one of our listeners, who suggested that we should dress up for the episode. So thank you, Sarah. Yes, and thank you, Mandy, who also suggested that we come dressed in a onesie because, yes. of course, there's that wonderful scene where um, Villanelle checks herself out of a hospital in a child's blue onesie. And I did try and find my onesie, Mandy. Couldn't find it anywhere. Must have gone to a charity shop at some point, so I'm afraid... Um... <laughs> All right. All right. We believe you, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm, I'm genuinely wearing Birkenstocks and hiking socks, so I think um, Eve would probably shoot me on a grounds for crimes against fashion if she saw me. So anyway... I mean, I'm impressed, Karen. Well done for dressing up. Why, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I thought I'd make an effort because uh, I just wanted to have dinner with you, okay? There we go. There we go, listeners. That's the first one of what we were just saying. That's the first show quote that we've managed to sneak in. So um, that's what you're looking for. There we go. Um, right, let's let's crack on then. Killing Eve. Uh, what, did you, what did you reckon for the show? I mean, I loved it. I, I really like the fact there's two strong female characters at the front of the TV show. And, you know, that has been quite unusual. If you think about like heist movies and things like that, they stick in one, you know, one female character and one character of colour um, to represent. And then that's it. Um, and I think Killing Eve really 
covers this kind of Bechtel test. It passes the Bechtel test. What's the Bechtel test? So the Bechtel test is, it kind of originated uh, from a comic strip back in 1985, but it really goes back to Virginia Woolf. And what she spotted in fiction was quite often the female characters were categorised by their relationship to men. So they were mothers or daughters or wives in fiction. That was back in the 1920s. And it's it's not changed that much if you think about it going through the kind of the 80s, the 90s and the noughties. And um, the, the Bechtel test basically says, firstly, are there two women in the in the fiction? And number two, do they talk to each other? And number yes. three, do they talk to each other about something other than men? Um, that is such a low bar. I know there's 50, you know, you look back, 50% of films that feature women don't pass the Bechtel test, which is quite scary when you think about it. But yeah, next time you're watching a film or telly or something like that, think about the Bechtel test and see see if it passes it, because that's quite an interesting one. That's pretty awful, isn't it? Pretty yeah. awful. <laughs> right. Well, listen, one of the first things that we are going to talk about is the obvious one. Uh, we're going into psychology and we're going into psychopaths. But just before we do that, because we all know that Villanelle's a psychopath, that's very, very clear to anyone that watches the show. But She's also a narcissist, and I, I wanted to start the show with one of my favourite things that we found out while doing the research, having a look at Villanelle's narcissism. Yes. Now, narcissism is part of what they call the dark triad, which sounds very good, doesn't it? The dark triad. Now, I had real problems saying this in rehearsal, everyone. So this could be comedy moment number one. So, <laughs> so the, dark, the dark triad features narcissism, Machiavellianism. You see, I can say that one psychopathy you did, did you, now you've it? done it right now you've oh. done it right you've led them up expecting you to fail and then you've succeeded come on psychopathy come on. Psychopathy. Yeah, psych- psychopathy that's the one I couldn't say earlier so we're all right um, and sorry gentlemen uh, those of you that are listening um, men are more likely to suffer from the dark triad than women so the big question though is uh, have you examined your eyebrows lately not massively no no, I suppose you've not been staring at them in Zoom or anything like that, no? I mean, everybody only ever looks at themselves in Zoom anyway, right? Mm. <laughs> so, so eyebrows. So actually, you can tell if someone is narcissistic, it turns out, by looking at their eyebrows. Yes, this is, this is crazy. So this is a, a recent Ig Nobel Prize for Psychology was awarded to a team who found this out. They actually devised a method for identifying a narcissist just by looking at their eyebrows. So it's it's kind of logical and quite clear to think that maybe a lot of people can you can you can guess that someone's a narcissist based on what they're wearing how they dress maybe they're quite stylish or fashionable or they're really neat or organized and sometimes you can kind of tell by their face and their facial expressions but to narrow it into the eyebrows this was interesting yeah so in their research what they did was they showed images of faces so they'd taken the hair off everything was just literally facial features and some of the people they showed um some of the some of the individuals that were shown in these images were narcissists or narcissistic and others weren't. And it turned out people could identify who was a narcissist and who wasn't a narcissist, first of all, interesting idea. And, and then secondly, what they did was they thought, well, how, how come people can do that? So they narrowed it down to particular features within the face. And then it turned out it was the eyebrows that gave it away. And what they even did was took eyebrows from a narcissist and put them onto the face of a non-narcissist. They photoshopped it. They didn't just take them. Well, obviously, yes. I'm talking about the images here, quite clearly. <laughs> and, um, and they could still tell that, that this person, you know, the eyebrows were narcissistic or that they were of a narcissist 
or a narcissistic person, which is quite interesting. So it turns out it was about how groomed or distinctive or feminine the eyebrows actually looked. And, um, and the one that predicted in terms of the most accuracy was the distinctiveness. So if you had distinctive eyebrows, it showed that you had narcissistic tendencies or you were a narcissist. And 10 points to Denise there, who's just jumped into the chat with, a, with <laughs> Trump question mark. So yes. I will be looking at that man's eyebrows next time I'm unfortunate <laughs> enough to come across his image. Yeah, I think I think you might be right there. They're certainly distinctive, aren't they? Mm, well, listen, from one potential psychopath to a guaranteed one. Look at that segue. Um, let's start with Villanelle. She, I mean, she's a psychopath. They call her a psychopath to her face. So how do we use science to decide who a psychopath is? So actually, there's a checklist, and this is called the Hair Psychopathy Checklist. And it was developed by Robert D. Hare back in the 1970s. And then it was kind of, it's been changed over time. And I think it's about late 1990s, the one that we use currently. And basically, it's a series of statements down the checklist. And, and a person will talk to you in an interview, a little bit like when Villanelle was wearing her pink dress in the show. Um, they were doing a little interview with her, weren't they? They were looking for these these. Um, psychopathic traits and seeing if you've got any of them you know like um and ticking them off so i mean the test looks at two different domains the first one is the interpersonal or the core or primary psychopathy domain so this is having a look at things like the 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 kind of character traits that you expect from a psychopath so they're glib they're charming a lot of the time they lack remorse they lack empathy um they're quite grandiose they have like a really inflated sense of self-worth and they're often pathological liars, or at the very least, they don't see the point in telling the truth. And the other domain that the test looks at is a behaviour, or in this case, kind of antisocial behaviour. So committing crimes. And if you are committing crimes, the style and the versatility of the crimes you're committed, how impulsive your behaviour tends to be, and also how promiscuous you are. Oh, I say. Mm. Um, so, so what they do is they, they go through this tick list and for each of the statements they have to you have to decide is the person zero one or two and if they're zero they're not showing any of that particular trait and if they're two they're definitely showing that trait and if they're one you kind of maybe maybe not kind of in the middle somewhere and if you score between 25 and 30 on that hair um, assessment then you're considered to be a psychopath. Um, most people score like kind of one or two and we spoke to an expert about this and he said don't worry if you score one or two that's just called having personality so that's great but actually a high proportion of people will score kind of 10 or 15 and these are often quite high risk takers sometimes they're into designer drugs or they're quite promiscuous yeah um and hair who's the guy who who actually wrote it um he he described a psychopath as part of this and, and his description is really, really good. But I think what's really interesting is that 1% of the population is considered to be psychopath or psychopathic. Yeah, so 1% of the population reaches kind of 30 out of 40 on the checklist. And you think, ah, oh, 1%, like, that's not very many. But actually, we do some maths. That's quite a lot of people. It's a lot of people. If you think there's, you know, 60-odd million in this country, that is a lot of people. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the crucial point is... Not all psychopaths are serial killers or indeed international assassins. In fact, quite a lot of them aren't like bad at all. Um, you get quite a few examples of um, academics who are really high in their field or CEOs who will actually score quite highly on the psychopath checklist. Um, and often those traits will have actually driven them into their career and helped to build um, their kind of resilience through their life. But it's often it's thought that it's the early years that will define which direction you go in, whether you end up as a, a good psychopath or a bad psychopath, as it were. 
and there's one episode of Killing Eve where um, Villanelle goes back and kind of sees her family and you get a bit of a glimpse into what her like early life was like and she was you know her mum put her in an orphanage and um, you can kind of see how perhaps that's that's one of the things that sent her down the uh, international assassin route. <laughs> Are you saying people who are sent to orphanages no, might turn into international don't assassins? <laughs> don't you dare twist my words like that, don't Karen Collins. That don't go down no. that route. Don't go down that route. No, don't But one thing is absolutely for sure. You should never tell a psychopath they're a psychopath because it upsets them. It does indeed. Don't ever do that. But but what Hare did was he, he actually defined what a psychopath was. And I'm actually going to read his definition because I think it's quite poignant. Because you love it. I love it, yes. I mean, we're biologists, okay? okay. You ready for this? <gasps> Ten ready? points to Lloyd and Bryony who spotted the quote before everyone Yay, else. Yay, well done. <laughs> um, so this, this is a quote from Hare. Intraspecies predators. That's what caught our eye. Intraspecies intraspecies that's how you get two biologists yeah. into into your paper absolutely so what, intra- what phrase <laughs> intraspecies predators who use charm manipulation intimidation sex and violence to control others and to satisfy their own selfish needs lacking in conscience and empathy they take what they want and do as they please violate, violating social norms and expectations without guilt or remorse i mean that sounds like Villanelle, doesn't it? Tick. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And um, so this list that the hair um, psychopathy checklist was used to actually help write the character. So all of these traits were applied to Villanelle when they were starting to kind of create her. But what's interesting is they wanted to draw on um, real life case studies, but actually most psychopaths are male. So there were very few female case studies um, for people to, for, for the team to, to draw on. Mm-hmm. So the show itself is based on a series of novellas which were written by Luke Jennings, who's one of the show creators. And um, he did use some of the rare examples that do exist of female assassins and of psychopaths. So we thought we might have a, a little look at them. Yeah, so um, uh, Luke Jennings based Villanelle on a, um, an assassin called La Tigressa. Um, and she was a hit woman for the, Be- for the Basque separatist movement, ETA, back in the 1990s. And she murdered 23 people back in the 1990s. And she was caught, put in prison. Um, she did apologise for it and come out and she did end up coming out of prison. And the fact that she apologised for it suggests that she is an assassin, but not necessarily a psychopath. Yeah. And, and like Villanelle, I think the key point is the reason why he found her so fascinating and wanted to write about her was like Villanelle, she was prepared to use her beauty and sexual allure to seduce her victims. I like that phrase, sexual oh, allure. Oh, it's creepy the way you say it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Phoebe Waller-Bridge joined the writing team. All hail Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I adore her. Um, mm. And she added to the character of Villanelle um, by after seeing an interview with a woman called Angela Simpson. So she was imprisoned. No, she wasn't imprisoned. She did some imprisoning and some yes. torturing and some murdering. Um, and she pled guilty to first degree murder um, and was sentenced to life in prison. But she did a interview with a, with the TV crew and um, she showed absolutely no empathy, no remorse. She laughed about it. She told the crew, like, make me look good. And um, she said she hoped that she would get the opportunity to kill again. That's, and that's just staggering. So she yeah. was uh, definitely an influence on Villanelle's character. Yeah, and definitely, definitely psychopaths. So no, no, um, no doubt about that. No question there. No. Now, normally um, on, in our podcast at this point, we'd bring in an expert guest uh, and have, an, have a bit of an interview. And we usually have uh, two, sometimes one guest. 
uh, on the show. Now, we did go out and do the interview, uh, but we, we're not going to include it in the show itself because we'd wanted to do it all live. So we thought that will work better. Um, but we did talk to the psychologist who was the expert or one of the consultants for the show. Yeah, so we spoke to Dr. Mark Freestone, who's a reader in mental health at Queen Mary University of London. He's an author of the book Making a Psychopath. Can you see why I wanted to talk to him? And he's also worked in forensic mental health for 17 years. So he has worked with many psychopaths in group and one on one in a clinical setting. Yeah. Um, Who better? Who better to talk to? Exactly. And many of his anecdotes ended up in the show as well. And we're going to talk about a few of them later. But but one of the key ones is that he and, and a number of uh, other clinicians that that worked with people, you know, with who were psychopaths who were in prison. Um, one thing they notice is they quite often have these kind of childish traits to them. It's almost like they're stuck in, in a developmental stage. And you'll notice that Villanelle's quite childish on the programme as well. So that's definitely one of the things that they brought into the writing for Villanelle. And there's a, there's a wonderful scene in series one, which we we mentioned earlier, where Villanelle is sat in a psychiatrist's office and she turns up in that bright pink um, ballerina skirt. Um, And the idea for the skirt was actually because when Mark, he once watched a training video where somebody came in to be interviewed in the most distractingly big woolly jumper, like sleeves dragging on the floor, your eyes just poking out above the roll neck. Um, And I love that he was like, that was odd. Let's put that in the show. And that turned into the giant iconic pink dress, which was emulated at the Oscars that year with lots of actresses turning up in giant bright pink bubblegum dresses. Mm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So in this particular scene, she's being shown lots of different images of kind of death and injury. Um, And they ask how she is. And she says, I had a heavy period last week. But other than that, I'm okay." Which is just like a lack of empathy there. Not not even remotely caring about the pictures she's been seeing. And then they show her a dog that's being hung and she starts to well up. And, you know, they kind of lean in and think, oh, maybe maybe she is. um, She's feeling some things. Maybe she's not a psychopath. And then she switches and she laughs at them and she just turns it off and she points out she manipulated them again. She tricked them into thinking that she was she was feeling something. And they just kind of leaned back and were like, yeah, no, she's definitely definitely a psychopath. psychopath. Yeah. So they're using the hair checklist there to say, Mm. yep, definitely. Um, So you can hear more from Mark on our Patreon. Um, So we we have a Patreon and thank you very much. We've we've got a a few people on there, which is great. Um, And we release bonus episodes every month and we pop them on there. So we talk about you know, what we've been doing. And we also include bonus clips because all of our interviews last about an hour. And obviously within our podcast, we include about 15 to 20 minutes at the most of each guest. So there's extra bonus content on there. So I suppose we ought to go to the poll, haven't we? Yes. So um, I don't know, Matt, if, help you can Matt if you can close the poll know. and let us know what the uh, what the results are of each of those, that'd be fab. Yeah, so the first question was, um, are you um, an early bird or night owl? So I suppose if we ask you, first of all, Emma, are you an early bird or a night owl? I mean, of the two, I'm more of an early bird, but I'm not, I know that I'm not quite as early a bird as you. Yeah, yeah, we get up quite early here. Yeah, definitely early bird. So Matt, have you got the outcomes of the poll by any chance? Um, and the reason we ask this question is there's actually an Ig Nobel um, award, um, a p- award-winning piece of research looking into this. And what they actually found is that people who habitually stay up late are on average more self-admiring, manipulative and more psychopathic than people who habitually rise early in the morning. So all you night outs so there out there. Have a little think. Yeah. Maybe do the hair ch- checklist. See what you're averaging. Um, I'm quite glad we both said that we were early birds. Yeah, yeah, that's we're pretty early good. Birds, yeah. 
Yeah, we did. We we were early birds before we read the paper, I have to say, just in case yeah. you were wondering. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how about coffee? The other question that we asked was, how do you take your coffee? Um, so researchers found a correlation actually between people who drink black coffee and people who exhibit psychopathic traits. So um, coming from someone that drinks black coffee, I wasn't particularly thrilled to hear about that. But the nice thing is that it's it's a correlation. It's not a causation. So yes, those two groups are often similar, but by drinking black coffee, that does not make you a psychopath. And being a psychopath does not mean that you like black coffee. So they could, they the, could still be very separate, which is quite nice. It's the old classic uh, causation correlation nonsense, which we're always talking about in science, aren't we? Yeah. Mm. Just because there's a correlation doesn't mean there's causation. Doesn't mean there's a reason <laughs> that, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, we got somebody who's got both, which is a bit concerning. Go and do the hair test. Go and do the hair test and find out just to see. <laughs> and, if, and if you get over 30, don't, yeah, don't let us know. If you, get, if you get over 15, you might be, you know, become a really successful person in business or academia. So, yay. Winning. Go for it. Mm. Lovely. Yes. Okay, well, we're going to have to move on because we can't quite yeah. see the splits. We'll, we'll have to try and reveal those at the end. Mm. But um, I think it's time maybe that we have a look at Villanelle's actions because we've kind of had a look at the psychology. Mm. So let's focus on her kind of near constant murders, I think. Yeah, near constant murders. I like the way you put that. Well, Lovely. I mean, how else do you describe it? This is true. Um, so one of the other consultants they used on the show was Gordon Carrera, who's a BBC security correspondent. And um, they asked him about, are there any unusual ways that people have been assassinated around the world, you know, in terms of MI5, MI6 and other protagonists? And um, he came up with a kill list of, you know, interesting ways that people have been assassinated. And what they then did was put the kind of Killing Eve twist onto it. You know, Phoebe put her little, a little zing onto those particular murders in order to make the episodes. So, so they are quite a lot of them based on what's happened in real life. That's one of my favourite things, the kill list. I can just imagine him at home and the wife's like, what are you, what are you doing today? What are you working on? He's like, kill list. Mm. Don't ask questions. Yeah. So <laughs> in... <laughs> In series one, I mean, let's have a look at some of these kills, shall yeah. we? In in series one, episode two, Villanelle, um, she disguises herself as a waitress. She turns up to a fancy event and she follows her mark down into the toilets where she persuades them to take a little sniff of some perfume that she's um, presented them with and they die there and then. So yeah. does that sound familiar, death by perfume? Yeah, I mean, we have to say the, the inspiration from it was actually the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, back in 2017. So that's what inspired it. Yeah, Gordon Gordon has confirmed that one, so we're yeah. not just making this up. Um, so this basically, uh, it was at Kuala Lumpur Airport in Malaysia. He was sprayed with a nerve agent by two women. And the autopsy showed that the nerve agent used was called VX. And actually, VX was developed for military use, but it was first originally discovered by researchers looking at pesticides. It's always the way always for a scientist, isn't it? We go and invent something to help people, and then Accidentally. someone goes and twists it and turns it into something nasty. Mm. Yeah not good is it um but while we're on the subject of nerve agents i mean both of us live relatively close to salisbury don't we where we live and Ish. um i just wanted to mention that uh, salisbury is obviously famous throughout europe and the whole world for its spire which is 123 meters tall and its clock as well i mean its clock is one of a kind um and it still works karen i know you're not pitching for a job in a travel agent's office in salisbury and that is sneaky because I know that was a quote and that was not a quote from the show. 
Um, and I'm not going to tell you where it is. So listeners, if you recognize it, or viewers, I suppose now, if mm. you recognize it, drop it in the chat because that was sneaky of you. I'd like to see if anyone knows where that one's from. So what, anyway, what we're talking about is that in, um, in 2018, Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with a nerve agent called Novichok in Salisbury. They both ended up in intensive care as, as well as a police officer involved in the case, um, but both survived. But a few months later, uh, several miles away, a lady called Dawn, Sto- Dawn Sturgis um, sprayed herself with um, perfume, which is what she was, um, she was given as a gift, but it, was, it had been found in a bin in Salisbury. And it turned out that actually this perfume bottle contained the nerve agent Novichok and she had such a high dose that she unfortunately died. Yeah, which is um, obviously unfortunate. Um, and Lots nerve- of people recognising that quote there. Yes. Lots of people. Yes, yes. There's a <laughs> couple of chaps from Russia might have popped over and said that about Salisbury. Had a little Cathedral. visit, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, so, so nerve agents themselves are really, really nasty. Um, they're chemicals which block uh, the nerves from communicating with your organs. And what they do is they block an enzyme quite often called acetylcholinesterase. There's another one of those words. Acetylcholinesterase. Sorry, I gave you all the long words. I know, I know. (laughs) Um, And this breaks down the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. And that's, you know, involved in muscle contraction. And uh, what happens is when that enzyme's no longer working because it's been blocked, um, you end up with muscle spasms and it stops it stops your muscles working as they should. And and as we know, there's a lot of muscles in our body that carry out lots of different functions. They're all quite useful. They're mm. all quite useful. So, so often you'll see um, if someone's been affected by a nerve agent, you'll see pupils contracting. They might get headaches, uh, chest pain. Uh, often they can involuntarily uh, urinate or defecate. And often the cause of death in these situations is um, either that you lose control of your respiration and your breathing becomes incredibly difficult or you actually suffer um, cardiac arrest or a heart attack. And quite often they're inhaled. So this is kind of, you know, where we're talking with the perfume and the spray in um, Kuala Lumpur Airport. But some you can actually absorb through the skin. Yeah. And, And in the case of Salisbury... Um, it was absorbed through the skin and obviously as, as being perfume and they sprayed it on the door handle of the house. And that's how, you know, they, they hoped to to kill the people inside, which is a nasty way to go. Um, now, in the actual show, um, Villanelle didn't get ill despite being in close contact with it. But her target had an asthma attack after being sprayed and her boyfriend Sebastian dies as well after inhaling it. Yeah, so we know that nerve agents were the inspiration for that particular scene, but it's not explicitly said in the show that Villanelle did use a nerve agent. Um, in fact, she mixes it herself um, with items that she bought from a pharmacy. Yeah, so, and, and somebody, somebody online's actually taken a good close look at those bottles and realised that in. one of them's hydrogen peroxide. So, mm, uh, Which yeah. can be triggering for people with asthma. Mm. But um, do you know what? I've been beaten to it in the chat. I was about to launch in with one of my all-time favourite quotes from the show, and well done, Nika. You've already you've already shouted uh, out in the chat. So this particular kill was one of um, my favourite moments. She goes, um, "This one has asthma. You know, I like the breathy ones." Mm. Yes, fantastic. But we were beaten. Well spotted there. Put in the yeah. chat before we even said it. That's we, that's we cued it in so well. well. Yeah, well, well done. done. <laughs> um, so we need to, I think, take a look at some of our other classic kills as well. Um, so what do you think would happen if you got stabbed by a sharpened hairpin, for example? I think you're going to bleed to death, particularly if you get stabbed in the carotid artery or the jugular vein, in which case you've kind of got no chance. You've got between five and 15 seconds before you uh, before you bleed out, which I, you know, if you're an assassin and you want to make a quick getaway, it's, it's quite a quick and easy and effective method, I would say. Yeah, but it's very messy. I mean, if you get stopped later on, you... 
you're gonna have blood on you. You need to be in full coronavirus PPE that you could just strip off somewhere so you weren't. Yeah, yeah. good point. Mm. (laughs) Good point. So, are there any other wacky ways of using science to assassinate someone that have been used in real life? Yes, quite a few of them actually. So, injecting rice in pellets into the target's skin using umbrella. That was done on Waterloo Bridge in 1978. It was indeed. Mm. How about uh, injecting lethal disease into a toothpaste tube? Interesting. So this is something that the CIA had planned to do in order to kill Patrice Lumaba in 1960, who was the leader of the Republic of Congo. They didn't need to in the end because he ended up being executed without a trial. So Mm. I wonder what happened to that toothpaste. Mandy's come up with one there in chat, look. Air bubbles between the toes. That's a very good one. They use that in a lot of crime dramas, don't they? Because you can't... Because it'll end up... How does it work, Karen? Do you know exactly? I don't know exactly, no. But air bubbles in in the bloodstream is not good at all. Dangerous. Not good. And really hard to track as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Because if you... Oh, bends. There you go. The bends. Um, Because Ah. if you... And you do it between the toes, because that's not an obvious place to spot um, a um, needle needle mark, is it? So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, And, of course, we we all know about radioactive polonium-210, served in tea that was alexander litvinenko in 2006 um but also there's been example another example in drink uh which is airline drink spiked with arsenic that was in 2004 um someone was poisoned on a flight to amsterdam using arsenic in a drink okay right airline murders what are we thinking smart not smart because Kind of smart in the way that if you were to try and kill someone on a flight and you were like over the sea and a very long way away from a hospital, they don't have much chance provided whatever you needed wasn't in like the first aid kit. But also, if someone dies on a flight, like the police know every single one of the suspects is encased in a, in a, a metal flying canister. So when they land, you can't get away. It's not like you can just like kind of stab someone in the street and then disappear into the crowd. It's very Agatha Christie, country house, isn't it? But, but yeah, it I, can see, I can see Villanelle dressed as an air hostess, maybe doing a classic Britney, <laughs> Britney Spears. costumes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, air hostess. Um, Strutting down from the cockpit. Yeah. yeah. Commit the murder and just walk away. I can see yeah. her doing that. Yeah, yeah to be fair. Yeah. But one thing she doesn't do is she never cleans up after herself, does no. she? She loves a really grand, messy murder. So how do you dispose of a body? Well, we, we had some tips, didn't we, from our Silent Witness episode. Um, so if you're, if you're new to the podcast, go back and listen to our Silent Witness episode because we actually talked to a couple of people in a forensic science house that's set up for forensic science students as a fake crime scene, which was amazing. And we talked to a forensic pathologist as well. Really, really interesting. Ah, somebody spotted the quote well done well done well done (laughs) tina that was good um well one thing i have learned from all of our research and we have learned some weird things over the course of running this podcast for a year um is that if you're going to get rid of a a body and you want to dissolve it in acid so there's kind of no evidence you'd have to bury it don't do it in the bath unless your bath is plastic so of course i'm referring to breaking bad yeah um where they they decided to dissolve a body in hydrofluoric acid but hydrofluoric acid dissolves metal so when jesse tried to do it in a metal bath it all went horribly wrong corroded through the bath and um there was that really iconic awful scene where the bath and all the blood and the guts and the gore comes crashing down through the ceiling so plastic bathtubs are the way forward yeah, there we got we got the chance to talk to Professor Donna Nelson for that episode as well, didn't we? She was the uh, consultant for the show Breaking Bad. Really amazing woman, definitely worth uh, listening to. Really, really interesting. 
Um, so it's probably time we moved on to spycraft, I think, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, all of this takes place in a kind of modern day depiction of espionage, doesn't it? Mm. Secretive worlds. Yeah. So I think it's probably time we went down a few rabbit holes, isn't it? We do like rabbit holes. Yes. Take me to the hole. <laughs> Um, okay, so if we're talking about if we're talking about spycraft, then we have to start with invisible well done, Sean. ink. Got yes, in there first. nice. Sorry, I didn't make that one. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Well done. And um, uh, also, there's somebody in the chat has just looked at their partner very sinisterly and said, "We've got a plastic bath." So, mm, all right, interesting. Gosh. Sorry, do carry on. You were about to. I was going to say, yeah. If you're going to talk spycraft, you have to start with invisible ink. I mean, that yes. is that is the classic, isn't it? And, you know, we're talking lemon juice. We're talking grapefruit juice. And actually, in the Second World War, they use urine as well, which is quite an interesting idea. But I guess you I mean, don't, you're not going to be walking down the street with a lemon in your pocket, are you? To, to no, make... but you're always close to a supply of urine. You are, yes. So, so I can see where they're going there. Um, so for it to work as invisible ink, although wouldn't it stain the paper? That's what I don't understand about that one. You, I suppose it would, unless you're very hydrated. I was going to say, you'd have to get really hydrated first and then do your invisible ink letter. We said we but were going to go down some rabbit holes. We did. Yeah. Apologies. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so the reason it works is that all of these substances are slightly acidic. And um, what it does is it damages the fibres of the paper. And that means when you put it next to something which is hot... Those are the fibres that burn first. So as long as you remove it from the, you know, the flame or the hot bulb or whatever it is before the whole thing burns, you can actually read the writing. So it's quite clever. Yeah. But I mean, they've moved up, they've moved on, haven't yeah. they, from that. Yeah. So let's go and have a look at kind of new school, if I can, Invisible Ink. So researchers in Shanghai accidentally created a printable invisible ink, which would be very useful. So basically, this was a lead compound that is invisible to the human eye, but becomes visible when certain salts are applied to it. Mm. But what was particularly great was, um, so with things like juice, um, you can generally see the residue on the paper. So it's not yeah. actually that invisible. Do you know what? That was what was so gutting. You know, when you're in your primary school and you get overexcited about spycraft and you write a secret letter and you hand it to someone and say, it's a secret letter, it's a secret yeah. letter. And then to they just hold it, up to the, hold it up to the window and you can read it. So yeah. disappointing. But, yeah. you know. So, so these lead combats, they don't do this, which, is, which would make them incredibly useful in terms of things like uh, putting text or images on banknotes and using them for counterfeiting measures. The only issue being that we know that lead isn't really a great thing to be exposed yeah, to. Not really. No, not so much. You wouldn't no. want that on your banknotes, really, would no, you, lead? No. no. So they're looking at developing a similar thing with tin, again, because they kind of accidentally discovered it and now they're trying to make it much better and much more useful. Yeah, but that would be really, really useful. That'd yeah. be cool. Mm. Um, now, we know that Villanelle's a pathological liar because it's one of one of her key features and also uh, features of um, psychopaths. Um, and lying is a really key part of spying, basically, isn't it? I mean, it's really important. And um, there was a paper that came out in 2014, actually, that, that identified 18 traits that make someone a really effective liar. Um, and they include obvious things like confidence and quick thinking and things that you'd expect. But there were a couple of really interesting ones. So there was something called unverifiable responding. And this is where you, well, you know when to say, I don't know, rather than making something up. Because if you make something up, there's a probability that you'll get caught out later. So it's about knowing when to make something up and when to say, I don't know. Um, and the other one is eloquence. 
eloquence who'd have thought eloquence would would work and the reason eloquence works is that if you just make a really really long convoluted story people get lost in the story and then they forget the details and then you you can get away with lying so yeah so maybe my um habit of rambling too much might come in useful one day (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe i'd probably forget what i had rambled though and end up in a bit of a bit of a pickle um, so one of the other things that we found, which was pretty interesting, was that spies used to use knitting yeah. to send coded messages. I love this. So knitting basically has a built-in binary code. You, know, you knit one, purl one, continue. Um, so it's really, really great for sending coded messages. And in World War One, both sides used this. Mm. So the Allies would knit a jumper uh, in the kind of the knit one, purl one. Um, I don't know enough about yeah, knitting. Pattern. Yeah, pattern. Mm. But um so that when you sent said knitted jumper or scarf to the receiver, the receiver could have a look at the pattern and it would maybe be translated into something like a train timetable or something that was useful. Um, and the Germans took a different technique. What they would do is they would knot the wool at different intervals, um, basically like Morse code, so mm. that you could then knit the jumper, send it. Uh, and when it was received, it could be unraveled and then deciphered. Yeah. Pretty neat. And it's and that's that's the advantage of Morse code, isn't it? Because it's because Morse code's effectively binary as well, because it's got the dot dash system, and then you've got your knit pearl, knit pearl yeah. dot dash, all fits together really nicely. Very um, clever. Yeah. So let's pull it back to Killing Eve, though, because obviously that's what we're talking about. No um, knitting there. Yeah. No knitting in Killing Eve. Well, not yet. Anyway, who knows? Hey, season um, four. Yeah. Hurrah. I want to see it happen. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps we should uh, suggest it, suggest it to the writers, maybe. Yeah, because I'm mates with Phoebe Waller Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> um so so we um we see villanelle changing her appearance a lot in the show i mean that is really that happens all the time and the costumes that she wears are amazing Mm. yeah so i mean let's have a chat about disguises then yes so joanna mendez is the chief of disguise at cia can we just just want that pause chief of disguise disguise. can you imagine what a business card love that so she has gone on record and described some of the different ways in which they uh, will try and change an operative's appearance. Um, so one of the nice things that she said was she would describe a disguise as a bit like an onion. So you have loads and loads of layers. You can keep peeling them off and putting new ones on. And eventually the person underneath just gets lost underneath all these layers. Um, and, you know, disguise can be really simple, which is what we see with Villanelle in that she will change her hair colour. She'll pop on a wig. She'll pop on glasses. She'll change her clothes, those kind of things. But the CIA have been using technology to come up with some really advanced options, which include like crazy realistic masks. Mm. So um, Joanna Mendez actually went into the Oval Office and briefed George Bush while wearing one of these masks. It's incredible, isn't it? There are pictures of this happening. And then at the end of the briefing, she took it off and he had no idea that he was being briefed by someone in a mask because they're so realistic, mm. um, which is a little bit terrifying, yeah, actually. Yeah, just a tad. A bit terrifying. Yeah, just a tad. Yeah. So the whole, I mean, the whole point of these is basically, you know, if you meet someone and then later you have to describe them to mm. uh, like the police or something, yeah. you'd make like a list of the things that you remembered about them. So, I mean, let's try something. If you were to describe me to the police, <laughs> because in this scenario, just, you know, yeah. I've just murdered someone and run away. Okay. Um, what, would you, what would you say to the police? Well, I'd say average height, you know, um, shoulder length, brown hair, dark, very dark blue eyes. And you've got a, a birthmarks kind of a freckle, is it? A massive Mas- freckle. Freckle yeah. underneath your eye there. That's quite distinctive. Lovely. Mm. Okay, so first thing I do is cake makeup on and cover up my freckle. <laughs> um, but basically the point is, if you were to make this list, um, mm. when you're designing the uh, disguise for someone, mm. 
you want to change every single item on that list. Yeah. They, they don't need to be the polar opposite. They just need to be enough that it would throw you off the scent so that when someone described you to the police, you would look nothing like, in reality, the list that they presented. Yeah. So that's really cool. So what you can do is, you know, you can hide grey hair, you can add grey hair, you can change the length of the hair, that sort of thing. That's all fairly obvious stuff. But what they'll also do is they've created some amazing kind of dental implants, so things that will sit uh, in and around your mouth but it can change like the plumpness of your face Mm. and someone's just suggested that we could give people psychopathic eyebrows (gasps) and I really like that idea yes narcissistic eyebrows how narcissistic will you be yeah (laughs) just stick them on (laughs) give them Trump, Trump eyebrows maybe could indeed. Um, and you can also um, have different kind of false implants that, that sit at the roof of your mouth to change mm. your palate so that your enunciation will change or it'll give you a list, lisp. Um, <laughs> you, you have to be pretty careful, though, because a bad disguise can make you look like someone's put a moustache on some fudge. And pause. <laughs> Um, but the ultimate goal, basically, is to blend in. It's to be very... Thank you. Well uh, thank done, you. Bryony. Um, so um, it's to blend and in and, and not be noticed at all, basically. You've got to be unforgettable. You've got to be grey. You've got to blend in. The total opposite of Villanelle, who does everything she can to stand out and look amazing. So She does. Hey-ho. <laughs> she is an absolute master of accents, though, to be yes, fair. So she's, true, she's very yeah. good at that, too. Yeah. Um, and but one of the one of the ways that she dresses up in the show, which was more for comedic effect, mm. was when um, she uh, she t- dressed up as Constantine. So he yes. turned up at her apartment yeah. to find her stood there dressed as him. Mm. Oh, it was wonderful. But yeah. not only was that quite a funny idea, it was actually if we if we throw it back to Mark Freestone that we spoke to mm. earlier, um, one of his patients did that to him. Yes. Yeah. This is crazy. Mm. So he went into a group session once with some of his psychopath clients. And um, one of them had formed a particular slightly obsessive attachment to him. And he turned up and he was wearing the exact same thing that Mark normally wore to sessions. He was in his cords and his flannel top. And he would sit in exactly the same way that Mark did. And he he said it was really rather sinister and quite creepy. Yeah. And he didn't know what to do either, did he? He wasn't sure how to respond to that. You don't want to piss off a psychopath, especially not one that's obsessed with you. No, definitely I mean, as is the entire premise of killing Eve. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Obsession. Session 101, I think, yeah. is Killing Eve, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so in one of the other episodes, uh, Villanelle dresses as a clown as well, doesn't she? She goes to a children's party to make balloon animals. And you might think, well, that's a bit foolish, isn't it? You know, you wouldn't go and assassinate someone dressed like dressed that. As a clown. But, mm. but it actually happened in real life. So uh, Francisco Felix, who was a member of a Mexican crime cartel, um, he was assassinated by clowns at the family event in a luxury tourist resort in October 2012. But if you go back to the disguises, if you're trying to describe someone to the police and mm-hmm. you say, big red wig, um, big, big, big red, fake nose, big giant shoes, shoes mm-hmm. really big bulbous outfit, like all you need to do is strip those off, peel off those layers. Who Nobody's going to find like. you. It's actually yeah. quite a good disguise. Mm, I like that out. a lot. Mm. Yeah. So another reason to be scared of clowns. Yes. Um, and in season two, there's a really interesting scene where both sides, as it were, decide to work together. Mm. And um, the quartermaster comes in with a briefcase full of gadgets. It's all very James Bond. Um, and Eve actually asks, you know, oh, cool. Do I get a watch with a laser in it? Oh, so I thought amazing. maybe we should uh, we should chat a little bit about spyware. Yes, because science and technology clearly are vitally important in the in the spy um, department and it's it's a big race basically to be to have more information so the more information you have the better so it's about how do you get that information and how do you use science and technology to do that mm. 
So there are some interesting, obviously listening is a huge part, like mm. bugging. Um, and these days, um, this is a little scary, but listening devices can be hidden in pretty much anything, anywhere, yeah. including inside credit cards. That's how small and powerful they can be. So there's something that's been developed in Switzerland called the NAGRA credit card, which is only available to law enforcement and the intelligence community. And it can look like a credit card, so it can just pop in your wallet and you wouldn't suspect it. Or it can look like an ID badge. And basically, it will record everything around and then it can be downloaded to a computer later. And if you think about it being on an ID badge, that is around your neck when you're wandering around at all times and nobody looks twice at them. Yeah. That's pretty scary. Smart. Scary. Mm. Um, so that, we're coming towards uh, the end of the um, recording, actually. Um, and at the end, we always throw in a random paper. So it's random, random paper time, everyone. There are some amazing things that get funded to do research. It yeah. is wonderful. So we're going back to the ignobles, obviously, because, you know... They're the, best. the best, the best random research there is out there. The best of the weird. Um, so I am. Uh, I own a cat. So we thought we'd look at cats and psychopaths. You know, like you do. Yeah, of um, course. So natural, apparently, natural there are five reliable personality traits that you can find in both cats and in humans. So personality traits in cats and humans, and they are neurotic, extroverted, dominant, impulsive, and agreeable. Okay, so cats are all those things and you can find them in humans too. And there's a few studies that have focused on looking at the dark triad plus what type of cat people own, you know. Okay. Um, and it's been established that people who are dark triads, that's, um, you know, either narcissistic, psychopathic or Machiavellian. Oh, goodness. Machiavellian. Machiavellianist. <laughs> Is that a word? I don't know. But anyway, um, they tend to have dominant, impulsive and neurotic cats. So if you do own a cat, take a look at your cat. Is it dominant, impulsive or neurotic? And then Karen, take I've a look met at your cat and I would definitely describe it as a neurotic cat. It is a neurotic cat and I drink black coffee. But luckily, I... You're saved uh, by being an early yes, bird. Yes, I'm an early bird. So we're all right. Um, so, yeah. So take a look at your the personality traits of your cat and then compare them with yourself and see what happens see what comes out yes now okay before we before we wrap up let's have a quick look at um while, while we're on the subject of black coffee and early birds and cats mm. we had um a 63 percent of people were night owls so that's quite that's quite a lot and only yeah. 37 37 of our listeners were uh early birds and um but we're in the minority with the black coffee only 22 percent mm. of our of our lovely viewers were drinking black coffee and 78 percent were keen on milk so a bit of an interesting split there in terms of who may or may not have some psychopathic traits definitely yeah so um that's pretty much all we've got time for in terms of the episode today so thank you so much all for coming and thank you so much cardiff science festival for for putting on this event for us but before we go i promised i would give you a list of the killing eve quotes and actually a lot of you did very well in the chat mm. i I'm, I'm impressed so let me give you a list and then you can let us know how many you got so we we, we kicked off with i just want to have dinner with you okay we had i have a heavy period last week apart from that i'm okay you should never tell a psychopath that they're a psychopath. It upsets them. Mm-hmm. This one has asthma. You know, I like the breathy ones. The one we were beaten to say. Yes. Totally well, yeah. done. well done. I think you're going to bleed to death. Do you know how to dispose of a body? Yes. Take me to the hole. <laughs> and you look like someone put a mustache on a piece of fudge. So there were, there were eight there. Um, let us know how many you got. I think overall, most of them were spotted at least once. So yeah. that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so we're, work- we're currently working on the next series, but you can listen to seasons one and two on your favourite podcast platform. 
Um, and obviously take a look out for us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We're under Small Screen Science. We've also got a website as well. And you can listen to our podcast back on the website. You can. So we do all of this for free. Uh, so if you'd like to help us out and support the show, we also have a Patreon page. You can just search for Small Screen Science on Patreon. And, um, and with that, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Yes. 